0: Lecture two of William James' Pragmatism is entitled What Pragmatism Means, and he tells us that there's really two things he wants to attend to. There's pragmatism as a method, the pragmatic method, and then there's pragmatism as a theory of truth. And of course, these interpenetrate, but he, he does treat the method prior to getting into the discussions of what a pragmatic theory of truth would look like in outline. And he says that it's a method for settling metaphysical disputes that would otherwise be interminable. So there's a few words there that we want to attend to carefully. First of all, interminable, what does that mean? That means that it would have no ending. And so we can get into disputes like this when we have people who are talking about things that we don't automatically assume to be metaphysical, but sometimes accord a social and political and ethical importance to like say freedom if somebody says i can't exercise my freedom if somebody is telling me i need to do things that are actually good for me right there's a a live issue and, and it's one that has some very clear practical consequences not only in our own time but really throughout all of history that's a long disputed question and if people just sort of dig in and say i see things this way and the other person says i see things this way and they can't come to terms they can't resolve Solve the issue, and the only resolution there could be would be perhaps coming to blows about it, which is not really solving anything in a rational manner, right? So, we want disputes, if they're going to be something that's worth engaging in, to be terminable, to be able to be brought to an end point and metaphysical disputes. So let's understand metaphysics in a very broad sense as pertaining to what is, what has being. And so metaphysical disputes are not always just about what actually does exist, but what people say exists, even if it doesn't. So whether witches exist or not, that's a metaphysical dispute, even if there aren't any witches. Or if we talk about square circles, right? There aren't any square circles, That's still a metaphysical dispute of some sense. So James gives this wonderful example at the beginning about being on a hunting trip with some of his buddies and coming back and they're in an argument about a squirrel and whether a man can go around the squirrel or not. And he says that this illustrates how the pragmatic method can be used. So what is the dispute? So some of the people are saying that you've got a tree and a squirrel clinging to the tree and going around the tree. And the man tries to get to be on the same side of the tree as the squirrel. He never succeeds because as he moves, the squirrel moves with him. Many of you have probably had this experience seeing squirrels in the park, unless they're very tame. They always try to keep some sort of obstacle between us. Now the question is the man goes all the way around the tree and the squirrel keeps pace with him always being opposite. Does the man go around the squirrel? And James says, yes. And no, because it all depends on what you mean by around. If you mean that the physical location of the squirrel and the physical location of the man are such that the man actually does, you could say orbit or go around the, you know, the circumference of a circle around the squirrel, then definitely he does go around the squirrel. If you mean that he succeeds in getting to the squirrel's backside, perhaps facing the squirrel or something like that, then the answer is no. And we have to make this distinction. And some of the people are like, ah, you're, you're, you're quibbling. And James says, no, no, this is a perfectly rational way of resolving it. It really depends on what practical consequences there are, or as he says, it depends on what you practically mean by going round the squirrel. And so according to James, many of the problems that we run into in philosophy and in all sorts of other areas of life have to do with not realizing that we have to focus on practical consequences. And he does talk about previous thinkers having used the pragmatic method without calling it as such. He says, there's absolutely nothing new in this method. Socrates was an adept at it. Aristotle used it methodically. Locke, Barclay, and Hume made momentous contributions to truth by its means. Then he brings up somebody who none of us read anymore. Shadworth Hodgson keeps insisting that realities are only what they are known as. And there's, you know, if if this is his game, there's probably a lot of other people that James could have enlisted as well. Why talk about those? Well, his audience will be quite familiar with Socrates' And Aristotle from ancient philosophy, and seeing these terms Locke, Barclay, and Hume, or these names, we automatically think, aha, British empiricism. And James will stress that pragmatism is, in fact, a form of radical empiricism going beyond, to some degree, what some of the commitments of Locke, Barclay, and Hume would be. He also brings up one of his much closer predecessors, Charles Sanders Peirce, who we typically associate with James and somebody else that he's talking about this in here, John Dewey, as well as Josiah Royce and others. And we associate them in classical American philosophy or the pragmatic movement writ large or things like that. Now, Peirce and James actually had a little bit of a tiff about the term pragmatism and what it meant, but we're gonna skip over that here. James is saying, Peirce and I are basically on the same page and he summarizes what Peirce is telling us in an article called how to make our ideas clear, which is absolutely important reading. If you're ever going to study Peirce or pragmatism in general. And he says that Peirce, after pointing out that our beliefs are really rules for action. So that's worth pausing on for a moment. Peirce is saying, if we want to make our ideas clear, we need to know what our beliefs actually entail. Are beliefs just a sort of speculative or theoretical thing, or do they have a practical side to them? And and Peirce thinks that even the things that seem very theoretical, if they have any meaning to them, they're going to be guides for action in some way. So he says, in order to develop a thought's meaning, we need only to determine what conduct is fitted to produce. That conduct is for us its sole significance. And then he says that the tangible fact that at the root of all of our thought distinctions, none of them are so fine as to consist in anything but a possible difference in practice. Now, practice doesn't just mean making boots, paving roads, doing your taxes, things like that. Thinking is also a kind of practice and so is feeling. So we we don't want to understand practice in too narrow of a sense. But he tells us if we want to attain perfect clearness in our thoughts of an object, we need only consider what conceivable effects of a practical kind the object may involve. And gives examples what sensations we are to expect from it, what reactions we must prepare. And so then he says that, now this is overplaying his hand a little bit. Our conception of these effects, whether immediate or remote, is for us the whole of our conception of the object, so far as that conception has possible significance at all. And James calls this the principle of pragmatism. So this is essential to the pragmatic method. We need to look at whatever ideas, whatever objects of thought, whatever claims we're making, what practical consequences result from this. And so the method itself, is, as he says, to interpret notions by tracing out their practical consequences. Let's come back for a moment to the example of the squirrel. You could say, well, this is actually one that doesn't really have any practical consequences, except getting your buddies to say you're right or you're wrong. But James would say, no, no, it really depends on what we're trying to say in terms of the ideas, the idea of around, what does that practically mean? What does that practically amount to? A little bit later, in the essay, he will use one of his catchphrases that is probably most closely associated with the pragmatic method and the pragmatic theory of truth, the cash value of an idea. What is its cash value? What can you trade it for? What is it actually worth? So we interpret these notions by, as he says, tracing out our practical consequences of them. Now he also stresses differences. And he tells us actually in two different places, he says that what difference would it practically make to anyone if this notion rather than that notion were true? If no practical difference can be traced, then the alternatives mean practically the same thing and all dispute is idle. So if around in this case didn't really mean two different things, then it's it's a needless dispute, right? There's no actual contention. If we're going to talk about having freedom and somebody says freedom means getting to do anything whatsoever that I want to without any consequences. And we say, Oh, well, what would that actually be like? Can you imagine something along those lines? And we could come up with some cases, but almost everything has consequences, right? So no real practical difference there. Cause it's, it's an incoherent idea. James a little bit later says that, There can be no difference anywhere that doesn't make a difference elsewhere. So if you're going to make a distinction between two different things, or you're going to say so-and-so has a different conception than what I'm talking about, and that's why we're arguing with each other, you've got to be able to say what the differences would actually amount to. And if you can't, you're probably dealing with something that is rather vague and kind of confused and not really a difference at all. Prime example of this is in the wonderful morality tale by Dr. Seuss, The Star-Bellied Sneeches. If you haven't read it, then you should look it up. There are these creatures, the Sneeches, that maintain a class distinction between the commoners and the elite. And the elite have stars on their bellies and all the rest of them don't. And now a guy comes to town with a machine that can put stars on your belly and everybody lines up to pay him, and they get stars on their belly. And now the elite people are like, oh, now stars don't really matter. Let's get our stars off our belly and that'll be the sign of being an elite. And within just a very short period of of time, they go into a kind of frenzy and start running in and out of both machines, piling up their money in this guy's hands as he goes. And by the end, nobody actually knows who started out as a star or non-star snitch and nobody can tell the difference between them and of course the moral of the story is this is a stupid distinction because it it doesn't mean anything other than that that particular social practice which can be upset very easily the other thing that it probably tells you is don't give your money to people who are telling you I'll make you belong to this club or something because he absconds taking the machines with him and all of their money so this is a sort of prime example of a case in which the differences don't really make a difference. Although you could say not having the money in their pocket is definitely a difference. So he says, there can be no difference that doesn't make a difference elsewhere. No difference in abstract truth that doesn't express itself in a difference in concrete fact and in conduct consequent on that fact imposed on somebody, somehow, somewhere and some when. So you notice all these sums, right? It doesn't have to make a difference to everybody at every single moment in order to be a vital difference, but it has to be a difference somewhere for somebody in some way at some time. And then there, there can be some meaning to it. The other thing that he he tells us as well is that we want to avoid relying upon words or concepts as endpoints for our disputes. And he says that this is going against the rationalist temperament of philosophy. philosophy and that these sort of people would be frozen out if if pragmatism, in fact, became the dominant way of doing things. And he says that metaphysics has usually followed a very primitive kind of quest. People hanker after magic and you know what in great part in magic words have always played. If you have the name or the formula, you can control the spirit. And so that's kind of a superstitious type of thinking. And so a lot of people believe, and I know many people like this, that if you can just get to the point where you identify something, you classify something, you bring in a name, you bring in a concept, you've now solved the issue because you've explained it all. And James says, no, you haven't. Doing that is not telling us much about anything other than you can talk about a word. He says, if you follow the pragmatic method, you cannot look on any such word as closing your quest. And here's where he brings up the practical cash value. He says, you must bring out of each word its practical cash value. Set it at work within the stream of your experience. It's less a solution than a program for more work and more particularly as an indication of the ways in which existing realities may be changed. Let me give you a prime example of, of how this so often happens within the history of ideas. There are many people who do what we can basically call popular garbage, uh, sometimes also elitist, but they're all worthless histories of philosophy where they divide the world up into empiricists and rationalists, or they divide the world up into Platonists and Aristotelians, idealists and hard-nosed pragmatists, uh, all of these sort of binary distinctions that people get into. Something quite similar in our own time is the diagnosis of this or that as postmodern relativism, right? Where the people have no idea what postmodernism actually means. And quite often are relativists themselves about things, right? Now, a lot of people think that once you've succeeded in either identifying a thinker or some of their tendencies with one of these slots that you would put them in, now you know everything you need to know about it, right? That person's a Cartesian. Ah, Get rid of them. We don't need to think about them. Or that person's an Aristotelian. And I know Aristotelians are good, so let's just take them at face value. Well, that's just, that's nonsense. You have to actually like read the thinkers, read the texts, look at them carefully, see what they're saying. Quite often there's a lot of different tendencies going on within their thought. And you know, you'd know you also ask yourself, well, what difference would it make if somebody were in fact a existentialist or a stoic or a postmodernist or whatever it is that you want to throw around? You have to be able to say, And you have to be able to say in a competent way, not in an imaginary, you know, let's create a new monster sort of way that we're all afraid of. You have to be able to say in a competent way what differences would be the case if somebody were to become a Sartrean existentialist, right? So don't just rely on words. And he also talks about one other thing that's very important here as well. He says that, Pragmatism is a reorientation of the person away from first things and towards last things. Now he doesn't mean teleology, say in an Aristotelian sense by last things. He means, as he says, well, I'll just read you the passage. He says, an attitude of orientation is what the pragmatic method means. The attitude of looking away from first things, principles, categories, supposed necessities, and of looking towards last things fruits, consequences, facts, the things that actually result. So what takes place? What happens if we accept this? That's the pragmatic method. So these are all important elements of it. There's one other thing I suppose I should mention. He does bring up the term instrumentalism, which is what Dewey preferred to calling things pragmatism. And he says that theories become instruments, not answers to enigmas in which we can rest. We don't lie back on them. We move forward and on occasion, make nature over by their aid. And he talks about how pragmatism sort of limbers up our theories. It unstiffens them as he says, and so theories, Theories are not something that are supposed to be an endpoint themselves or a final resolution, but rather something that we would use as an instrument to, you know, figure out what it is that we want to know and to solve some of the practical difficulties and challenges of our lives. So this is the pragmatic method, which you can distinguish from the pragmatic theory of truth. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.